The Da Da Di Da Da Code. Chapter 7. It was late afternoon when Johnny next awoke. Not that he knew for certain that it was late afternoon. It could have been any time really for Johnny, because the room in which he now awoke did not own to a window. It was a windowless room. In fact, it was more of a cell, really. In fact, it was a cell. A padded cell. Good and proper. Padded walls and padded door and padded floor as well. A single light bulb somewhat above. And all hope sinking fast. Well, at least he wasn't in restraints. He wasn't in a straitjacket, which was something, although not very much, considering. Johnny's stomach rumbled loudly. Johnny tried to shush it, but he was very hungry. Johnny, who had been lying where he'd been left, flat on his back in the center of the cell, rose unsteadily to his feet. He had that terrible post-medication hangover effect, all the pain whilst not having previously experienced all of the pleasure. Johnny's knees were shaking and his mouth was dry. Things really weren't going his way at the moment. Not that they ever really went his way, but what had brought all this lot on was anyone's guess. He hadn't done anything. He had tried to rescue a drowning child. He was an innocent man. And given that this was a loony wing, although of course they would never use the L word, he didn't really qualify to be here. He was no more loony now than he ever had been, and the amount of loony that he ever had been was insufficient to merit him being banged up in here now, so to speak. And it wasn't fair. It just wasn't fair. And then Johnny recalled that he had already learned that life wasn't fair. And so this unjust confinement was not teaching him anything he didn't already know. But God, he was hungry. Johnny took himself over to the padded door and addressed the little sliding shutter jobby. Excuse me, he said, in as polite a fashion as he could manage. Is there someone there? I'd really like to speak to a doctor if it would be convenient for one to speak to me. The little shutter shot instantly open. The face of Nurse Cecil grinned through it. Hello, sunshine, said Nurse Cecil. Up and about again, are we? Could I please speak to a doctor, asked Johnny. But of course, said Nurse Cecil. I'll see to it at once. And he slammed shut the grill. And he turned off Johnny's light. And time can pass slowly in a padded cell with the light off. But presently, when afternoon had become evening, although Johnny was not, of course, to know this, the door to Johnny's padded cell opened, and he was beckoned to accompany Nurse Cecil on a little walk to somewhere. Although, sadly, not the canteen. These offices are always the same, no matter the hospital. A deck, two chairs, bookshelves with the inevitable textbooks, a file of Rorschach ink blots, the big, big file of the patient, an object of interest or two, perhaps a plastic human skull, or a phrenology head, out of the reach of patient, of course, and a certain smell, a certain medical smell, which somehow conjures images of Nazi concentration camp experiments. Somehow. Johnny shivered as he was thrust by Nurse Cecil into this office. Behind the desk sat an earnest-looking fellow in a white coat. He was tinkering at the keyboard of that other thing that all these offices, indeed, all offices everywhere, has nowadays. The computer. I'll never get the hang of this, said the earnest-looking fellow. Do sit down, please, and he consulted the big fat file upon his desk. Mr. Hooker. Johnny Hooker sat down. You may leave us, Nurse Cecil. Wouldn't hear of it, sir, said the male nurse. Leave you alone with this raving maniac? It's more than my job's worth. I'm sure Mr. Hooker is not going to cause any bother. 
Are you, Mr. Hooker? Johnny Hooker shook his head. Definitely not, he said. Do you think that Nurse Cecil might go to the canteen and fetch me something to eat? I haven't eaten in twenty-four hours at least. Moonshine shone through the uncurtained window. Johnny's time and guesswork was right. Please get Mr. Hooker some supper, would you, Nurse Cecil? Nurse Cecil grunted in the affirmative and grudgingly left the office, slamming the door behind him. A willing enough fellow, really, said the chap behind the desk, but not the brightest star in the firmament. My name is Dr. Archie. You may call me Dr. Archie. Pleased to meet you, said Johnny, who wasn't. I have you in here, said Dr. Archie, tapping some more at his computer keyboard. The trouble is that I just can't get at you. You're on the database. You'd be surprised at all the information there is on here about you. No, I wouldn't, thought Johnny. Really? he said. Might I have a glass of water? he continued. My mouth is really dry. Of course, of course. There's a machine thing over there with paper cups. Help yourself. Johnny turned in his chair and noticed the other thing that these offices always have. The little water cooler jobby. They also have the box of tissues for when you're having a good cry. But Johnny hoped that he would not be needing the box of tissues. He rose from his chair, passed by the open window, making a mental note of just how open it was and how open it would need to be for him to shin out of it. And he took himself over to the water cooler. So much information, said Dr. Archie. Too much, some might say. Or the wrong information. Or information parading. Indeed, masquerading as information when it is anything but. If you understand my meaning. Johnny turned from his water cup filling. Eyes met across the office. Johnny shrugged in as noncommittal a way as he could manage. Thank you for the water, he said and he drank from the cup and refilled it. "'I understand your feelings,' said Dr. Archie, when Johnny, with water-filled cup, had returned to the patient's chair. "'You're being cautious. You do not wish to say—' "'You do not wish to say anything that might incriminate you in any way. Give the impression that there is something—how might I put this—wrong about you.' "'Politeness costs nothing,' said Johnny. "'That's what my mum always says.' Ah, uh, yes, said Dr. Archie. Your mother. Tell me about your mother. Which rang a bell somewhere. I think, said Johnny, that I must be a terrible disappointment to her. You love your mother? Everyone loves their mother, said Johnny. Interesting reply. The doctor tapped some more at the keyboard of his computer. This business with the drowning child, he said. How do you feel about that now? I can't say, said Johnny. Can't, said the doctor, raising his eyes. I have been medicated, said Johnny, and I cannot be certain of anything. Nurse Cecil told me that you hallucinated a female nurse this morning. Apparently so, said Johnny. I can't explain it. She did seem very real. But now you know that she was not? How can she have been? Good, said the doctor. There was a knocking and an opening. Nurse Cecil appeared bearing Johnny's supper on a tray. He placed this tray on Johnny's lap. Salad, he said. You did say that you were a vegetarian. Did you? asked the doctor, raising his eyebrows. Yes, said Johnny, who knew better than to argue. Just this week. You won't have it on your records. Enjoy, said Nurse Cecil, and, grinning, he left the office. Johnny Hooker viewed his supper. Lettuce and uncooked vegetable stuff and a glass of tomato juice. Mmm, 
went Dr. Archie. Looks yummy. Do tuck in. Johnny Hooker tucked into a salad, as a hungry man will do. Ah, said the doctor, still tapping at his keyboard. Something coming up here, I think. Ah, yes. It says here that you have developed a recent compulsion to enter competitions. Johnny Hooker looked up from his salad, a spring onion stuck between his lips like a green cigarette. What? He mumbled with his mouth full. You are apparently trying to crack the da-da-dee-da-da code. What would that be all about, then? Johnny Hooker's jaw hung slack. That's not a very good look, said Dr. Archie. I think you should swallow before you open your mouth like that. Johnny munched and then swallowed. That is on your computer? he asked. That I have entered a competition? But I haven't done it officially. I've decided to do so, that's all. I told you that you'd be surprised by what's on here. You do look surprised. I'm amazed, said Johnny, and also rather concerned. Why so? Because... Johnny paused before saying more. Indeed, he now intended to say no more. He knew full well because. Because it meant that he had been, quote-unquote, observed. Quote-unquote, listened into. That he was under surveillance. How else could that piece of information about himself be on the doctor's computer? Because, said Dr. Archie. Nothing, said Johnny. Do you think I might have a look at this computer entry about myself? Not permitted, I'm afraid, said Dr. Archie. No, I rather thought not. Johnny forked the last of his salad into his mouth and munched upon it. Plastic knife and fork, he noted. No weapon potential there. Dr. Archie smiled towards Johnny. Johnny smiled back at the doctor. And then Johnny leapt up from his chair, paper plate and cup of juice all spilling to the floor. He swung the computer monitor around. The screen was blank. The computer wasn't switched on. And Johnny cocked his head on one side and smiled at the doctor, and then swung his fist with a good wide swing and clocked that doc full face. And the doctor fell back in a flurry of case notes, and Johnny leapt out of the window. Chapter 8 Johnny Hooker awoke with a head full of noise. A head full of noise and a very damp constitution. He blinked in the daylight and took in the leaves and the grass and the sky and the hedgehog. The hedgehog sidled away, and Johnny clasped at his naked arms and felt a little confused. Slowly, but shuffled and dealt, as if playing cards, memory of the previous evening returned to him. Johnny sorted these memories into their separate suits. The special wing of the hospital... Nurse Hollywood, the padded cell, Nurse Cecil, the interview with Dr. Archie, Dr. Archie's knowledge of Johnny's doings, Johnny's escape through the window, a horrid chase up the Ealing Road, the outrunning of his pursuers, the scaling of the gates of Gunnerberry's Park, the hiding out in the mulberry bush, the waking up in the morning now, all damp, in the mulberry bush, and a head full of noise, noise, noise. Da-da-dee-da-da. 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 Stop it, shouted Johnny, and he pressed his fists to his temples. Then, keep it down, he told himself, but stop with the da-da-dee-da-das. Would you prefer a couple of folded rolls and a twiddly-diddly-dee? asked Mr. Giggles, the monkey boy. This is rather rubbish accommodation, even for you. The drugs have worn off then, said Johnny Hooker and I am cursed once more with you. And you should be glad to have me. See the trouble you get yourself into when you're on your own? 
medication and a padded cell and a nice plate of salad for your supper? I escaped, said Johnny. I didn't need your help. And it was all your fault that I ended up there in the first place. Drowning child? There was no drowning child. You saw the drowning child with your own eyes. We both know that I cannot trust the evidence of my own eyes. I suspect that you're being personal again, but no matter. It's a beautiful day. How do you plan that we spend it? Johnny Hooker made an exasperated face. Look at me, he said. I'm wearing nothing but a hospital smock. I am officially an escaped mental patient. They'll have my picture in the papers and on the news. You'd better keep your head down, then. That would be my advice. Oh, sound advice. Thank you very much. I do detect a certain tone in your voice. I'm starving, said Johnny. I'm starving and I'm freezing to death. Then you must be fed and warmed. My advice would be to hide out here in the park until things calm down a bit. Back in the days when Sir Henry Crawford owned the mansion here, he employed an ornamental hermit to adorn the grounds. The hermit was allowed a Bible for his spiritual sustenance and access to the kitchen garden for vegetables, which he was required to consume raw. He wore a rabbit skin surcoat and boots made from bark. And please be quiet, said Johnny. I have no wish to live the life of a hermit, ornamental or otherwise. You were pretty much a hermit anyway. Living rough and foraging for your own food will be character building. And you know what they say. A healthy body makes a healthy minefield. Johnny had long ago given up on the thankless task of taking a swing at Mr. Giggles. Perhaps, said he, I will just return to the hospital. The bed was comfy enough, and I'm sure I could come to some arrangement with Nurse Cecil that would involve me being fed at regular intervals. A treehouse, said Mr. Giggles. What? You could build a treehouse, here in the park, high up a tree and camouflaged. There's loads of fish in the ornamental pond. You could catch fish at night, and you could rig up ropes between the trees. Swing from one to another like Tarzan. Johnny had always liked Tarzan. I've always liked Tarzan, he said. Really, said Mr. Giggles. Fancy that. No, said Johnny. Not a treehouse. Although, perhaps, I wonder what time it is. And as if in answer to his question, the distant clock on the spire of St. Mary's chimed the seventh hour. I have an idea said Johnny. The park ranger's hut was nothing much to look at from the outside. It was one of those horrid porta-cabin affairs of the variety that working men rejoice to inhabit on building sites. There is always this suggestion about such huts that dark and sinister things go on inside them. The park ranger's hut lurked behind the trees to the north of Gunnersbury House. The trees were many and various. There were the standard oak, ash, and elm, sycamore, and horse chestnut. But this being Gunnersbury Park, a park which, it must be said, had over the years been owned and landscaped and planted and tended by one rich weirdo after another, some of the trees that prettified the place were of the quote-unquote odd persuasion. You don't see moosewood every day. Well, not hereabouts anyhow, nor too much in the way of monkey puzzle. And there were sequoias, cornels, dogwoods, ilex, Sal, and pop and minge trees in considerable abundance. The monkey puzzle having been planted during Princess Amelia's residence, the minge trees during that of Sir Henry Crawford, who, being a member of the aristocracy, was never adverse to a bit of minge in his ornamental garden. Johnny drew Mr. Giggles's attention to the monkey puzzle tree. 
Mr. Giggles pointedly ignored it. The park ranger's hut was locked. You'll have to smash a window, said Mr. Giggles. Which is where you are wrong, said Johnny, as he rooted around and about the door. Presently, he upturned a flower pot to disclose the keys that were hidden beneath. Nice as ninepence, said Johnny. What? Johnny opened up the door and had a peep within. Splendid, he was heard to say, and then he made his way inside. And presently, at a time not too far distant from his entrance, Johnny Hooker emerged from the park ranger's hut, wearing the uniform, cap, and boots of a Gunnersbury park ranger. How about that? he said to Mr. Giggles. Positively inspired, said the monkey boy. Now, I suggest that you run like the wind before the real park rangers arrive. No, said Johnny, I won't. They will catch you and bring you to book. They won't. They gave you a pretty sound walloping when they dragged you out of the pond. They won't recognize me, said Johnny. What? So how exactly does it work? Or rather, why does it not? You can go into that shop week after week, month after month, and get served by the same person, or be on the same bus every day and have your ticket clipped by the same bus conductor, but pass the shop assistant or the conductor in the street when they are out of uniform and not in the environment you have come to associate them with, and you don't recognize them. What is that all about? But whatever it is all about, it works the other way around. Put someone you know well into a uniform, and you hardly recognize them. Freaky, isn't it? So your theory is that you will not be recognized because you are wearing a uniform? Said Mr. Giggles. In as many words, said Johnny. Although, of course, I do not recall uttering any to that effect. Johnny dusted down the sleeves of his uniform and squared up his shoulders. The uniform fitted him rather well, and it rather suited him, too. I think I cut something of a dash, said he. It's a shame the village people split up, said Mr. Giggles. You'd have looked right at home amongst them. How dare you, said Johnny. I dare, said Mr. Giggles. Trust me, I dare. Aha, said Johnny, hastily relocking the door hut and returning the key to its flower pot bower. I hear footsteps approaching. And so Johnny did. The approaching footsteps of Mrs. Kenneth Connor and Charles Hawtrey. Charles was whistling, Birdhouse in Your Soul, the They Might Be Giants classic. Kenneth was accompanying the whistle by laying down a percussive track involving a rolled-up newspaper and his right trouser leg. And then, Well, hello, said Kenneth Connor. Who is this? Johnny Hooker stood to attention. David Chickatine, sir, said he, and he offered a salute. At ease, Mr. Chickatine, said Kenneth Connor, but he couldn't help but return the salute. David Chickatine, said Mr. Giggles. Who he? Student, said Johnny to Ranger Connor. Studying for a degree in... He paused. Park Rangering, he ventured. Sent here for work experience and told to report to you directly. To take my orders directly from you and you alone. The senior ranger said Johnny, choosing his words with care. You carry yourself with authority, and I am certain that I have the right man. Me? asked Ranger Connor. Me, personally? Well, said he, you do indeed have the right man. Splendid. I have asked them at the big house again and again for another man. But what do I get? 
cutbacks here, cutbacks there. You are a veritable blessing, young Chickatine. Chickatine, said Ranger Hawtrey. What kind of name is that? A rubbish one, said Mr. Giggles. Dutch, I think, said Johnny. For who has it in for the Dutch? I went to Holland once, said Ranger Hawtrey. They have a museum there, dedicated to Pooh. Did he just say what I think he just said? Said Mr. Giggles. Ranger Connor had unpotted the key. He opened the hut door and ushered Johnny inside. Our little cottage in the woods, he said. It was elegantly furnished, Johnny noticed. Johnny noted, now that he had time for more than a quick look around. There was a very nice George III mahogany sofa table with rounded twin flap top and ribbed trestle supports. A delicious William IV walnut footstool with scrolling legs and a brocade padded seat. A magnificent empire rosewood cabinet with foliate marquetry veneers. Several exquisite Queen Anne dining chairs. Johnny viewed this as one who had not viewed it before. Very nice indeed, he said. Commandeered, explained Roger Connor, from the museum basement, on shell-carved cabriole legs, and a host of other antique bits and bobbery, which lent the hut's interior to the look of Lovejoy's lockup. No point leaving it all down there to rot when it can be put to good purpose here. Quite so, said Johnny. Ranger Hawtrey switched on a small television that stood upon a Swedish Ormlo-mounted Kingswood, walnut and parquetry bomb commode, with a sale room value of six to eight thousand pounds. Ranger Connor said, That's odd. Odd, said Johnny. The armor door is open. Armor? Close cupboard, if you like. The French provincial style. One over there, with the cross-banded top and the boxwood stringing. We keep the spare uniforms inside it. The door's open. Odd. It was one of those first-thing-in-the-morning news shows, the one hosted by uncomfortable-looking male presenters whose suits are a little too tight, and very attractive female presenters with heavy bosoms and sexy spectacles. Odd, said Ranger Connor. What very sexy spectacles that woman's wearing, he continued. Listen and look, said Ranger Hawtrey. Again, this breaking news, said an uncomfortable-looking male presenter, whose suit was a little bit too tight. Dr. Roland Archie, head of the psychiatric unit at Brentford Cottage Hospital, was viciously murdered last night. Police are seeking escaped psychopath Jonathan Hooker, aged 27. The public are warned that this man is armed and dangerous. Do not, under any circumstances, approach this man. And up flashed Johnny's photo on the screen. A nice, crisp detailed photograph that Johnny did not recall having taken. If you see this man, report his whereabouts immediately to the police. Ugly-looking customer, said Ranger Kenneth Connor. Viciously murdered, whispered Johnny Hooker. Psychopath, said Mr. Giggles. You're in trouble now. Chapter 9 Roger Hawtrey brewed a morning cuppa. Ranger Chickatine held his cup between trembling hands and supped and supped. At its contents. His stomach grumbled loudly for the lack of a filling and elicited some sympathy from Ranger Hawtrey, who offered the stomach's owner half of a fresh bacon sarney. Thank you, said Johnny, chewing at the sandwich, but finding the swallowing hard. South America would be your man, said Mr. Giggles. That's where all those Nazi war criminals retired to. Perhaps you could make a few subtle alterations to the uniform? Pretend you're a merchant seaman and sign on with a cruise liner or something. Then, when you get there, 
A few more subtle alterations, and lo, you'll pass for a young Martin Borman. Johnny Hooker said nothing to Mr. Giggles, but Johnny's brain was buzzing like a beehive. Viciously murdered? Johnny thought. I only gave him a bit of a smack. This is all some terrible mistake. It's all been a terrible mistake. All of it. Everything from the arrival of that letter. Ever since I determined to crack that da-da-dee-da-da code, my whole world has turned to dirt. It was dirt anyway, said Mr. Giggles. But it's quite exciting dirt now. I wonder what's going to happen next. Switch off that television, said Ranger Connor. If we see that lunatic in this park, I'll give him the hiding of his life. It's him, cried Ranger Hawtrey, and Johnny's blood froze. It's who? asked Ranger Connor. That loon, said Ranger Hawtrey. The one who was in the pond the day before yesterday? The one you did the electric dragon move on? Johnny Hooker slowly crossed his legs. Damn me, you're right, said Ranger Connor. Of course they carted him off to the cottage hospital. If I'd known he was a serial killer, I'd have given him the Dimac death touch. It didn't say on the news that he is a serial killer, said Johnny, keeping his cap on and his head down. He probably will be by the end of the day, said Ranger Connor. He'll probably go on what the Yanks refer to as a goddamn killing spree. Ranger Hawtrey nodded enthusiastically. A nun-raping, child-slaying, cocaine-fueled corporophiliac, eh? said Johnny. Baby-strangling, said Ranger Hawtrey. What? Puppy-buggering? Now stop it, said Ranger Connor. You'll get yourself feeling all unnecessary and I'll have to throw a bucket of water over you. Hanging is too good for those types, said Ranger Hawtrey. Did they bring back hanging? Johnny asked. I wrote the Prime Minister suggesting it, said Ranger Hawtrey. I'm seeing a rather unexpected side to you here, said Ranger Connor. Off with that television and let us get down to the job in hand today. Ranger Hawtrey switched off the television. Obviously, we must be particularly vigilant today and on the lookout for this maniac. We will keep in constant radio contact with our walkie-talkies. And travel in pairs. But there's only three of us said Ranger Hawtrey. Improvise, boy, said Ranger Connor. I'm loving this, said Mr. Giggles, and these lads think that you're a loon. Ranger Connor waggled his teacup at the younger ranger. We'd best tool up, said Ranger Hawtrey. Electric truncheons are what we'll need, and you know where we can acquire electric truncheons? asked Ranger Connor. Actually, yes. I'll make a call on my mobile. No, you will not. I do not need tooling up because I am skilled in Dimac. You cannot legally carry a weapon. Although, although, said Ranger Hawtrey, it is something of a gray area because we are on private property. You could actually carry a sword if you wish, but not if you conceal it. Funny old thing, the law. Do you have any martial arts training, young Chickatine? Me, said Johnny, head down, shook his head. But if there is any trouble, I do know how to run. Hmm went Ranger Connor. So, we travel in pairs, except for myself. You can carry a cudgel, Ranger Hawtrey. There are some very tasty swords in the museum, said Ranger Hawtrey. I could commandeer one of those. A stick, said Ranger Connor. A stick? A stout stick. But enough chit-chat. It's time to go off on the morning round. Master Chickatine, you will accompany Ranger Hawtrey. He'll show you the drill today. Tomorrow, I will find specific tasks to set you. Johnny Hooker nodded neath his cap. All right, then, said Ranger Connor. Up and at it, lads. Up and at it. Down shone the sun, and it was a beautiful day. Johnny had never been in the park so early, and the trees and grass, all dew-hung and glistening, really rather moved him. When you are very ill, 
or very harassed, or both, you can truly see beauty in simple things. It's something to do with their purity. Johnny Hooker sniffed the air. What a wonderful smell, said he. Yeah, said Ranger Hawtrey. It is good, isn't it? There's something really special about walking around the park first thing, before it's open to the public. It's, well, it's untainted, if you know what I mean. I do, said Johnny. Have you worked here long? Five years, said Ranger Hawtrey. I left school and applied to the police, but I failed the entrance exam. Have you ever wondered why people become traffic wardens? Actually, yes, said Johnny. I can't imagine why anyone would want to do a job that consists of little other than making people miserable. They're folk who failed the police entrance exam. The examiners know that they are not bright enough to be policemen, but they do so want a job that involves wearing a uniform and bullying the public. So, so how come you didn't become a traffic warden? I failed that exam as well. They have an exam for that? I didn't try very hard. Next down the line is park keeper, or park ranger as we are now rather romantically called. And I love it. Ken is a bit of a nutter, but he's got a good heart. And where else are you going to get all this? And Ranger Hawtrey gestured all around and about. It is beautiful, said Johnny. You think you'd have a go at this psycho then, if you came face to face with him again? Not without a very big sword. I'd run like a girly. Johnny chuckled, and then Johnny paused. He'd just had a little chuckle there. A moment of lightness, considering the direness of his situation. But then perhaps that's what it was. In this beautiful park, in the earliness of the morning, just for one moment. Surely you're a bit too old to be a student, said Ranger Hawtrey. And the moment was gone. Failed the police exam, said Johnny. No way. No, I don't really know what I'm doing with my life. I don't seem to be in control. Oh, don't say that, said Ranger Hawtrey. You sound like my mad brother. Your mad brother? Everyone seems to have a mad brother, don't they? I think it's a tradition, or an old charter, or something. Johnny Hooker nodded. My brother has this thing about machines. All kinds of machines. Or appliances, really. Anything that plugs into the electric and does something. Radio, TV, iron, hair straighteners. He gets the messages. The messages? Said Johnny, slowly. He says that messages are being beamed into his head through the electrical appliances. They've got his frequency. They? The controllers. The ones who control the folk who control us. My brother says that he's on to them. So they torment him day and night, beam these voices and images into his head. He's a paranoid schizophrenic, said Johnny. That's what the doctors say, yes. But you don't agree? I don't know. There's stuff he says that makes a lot of sense. Stuff he knows. Is he your older brother? Johnny asked. Ranger Hawtrey nodded and spied a stick on a grassy knoll and picked it up and waved it. What kind of stuff does he know? Mad stuff, said Ranger Hawtrey. But it does make some kind of sense. He reckons it's all to do with holes. He reckons that there's another world. One that for the most part we can't see or hear. But the folk of that world can see and hear us and they love to torment us. But mostly they can't, because human beings are born with these inbuilt mental screens to keep them out. It's an evolutionary thing. But some people, so-called paranoid schizophrenics, they have little holes in their mental shields, and so these beasties, or demons, or whatever they are, are able to squeeze through and torment them, drive them to do mad things. That's his theory, anyway. It's a popular theory, said Johnny. It is? Amongst a certain fraction of society. 
It's feasible, said Ranger Hawtrey. If you are prepared to adopt a medieval overview of life, that the insane are indeed devil-possessed, the thing is that that theory works just as well as any theory of mental imbalance. So you believe him? I don't know what to believe. But I don't really think I believe that messages are being beamed into his head via the pop-up toaster. They ceased their perambulations and sat down upon a bench. Ranger Hawtrey took out a small, white contrivance from his pocket. New iPod, he said. You can store 2,000 tracks on this. Do you like they might be giants? Johnny Hooker shrugged. I'm a big fan of the Sumerian kings, he said. And that's K-Y-N-G-E-S. Check this out. Ranger Hawtrey stuck the tiny earbuds into his ear holes, tinkered with his iPod, pulled the earbead jobbies from his ear holes, and passed the whole caboodle to Johnny and said, Check this out. Again. Johnny slotted the earbead jobbies into the ears that were his and then pressed the appropriate button. There was a moment of silence, in stereo. And then a voice said, We know where you are, Johnny. You can't hide from us. It was a dark and horrible voice. It wasn't Mr. Giggles.